Hello, you're listening to uh, On Israel in Al Monitor. I'm Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv. If anyone had uh, entertained any hopes that Israel's new government might revive the long-dead negotiations with the Palestinians, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid uh, set them straight a few weeks ago. Lapid promised that when he becomes Prime Minister in August 2023, he will not conduct talks with the Palestinians not because he doesn't want to, and not because he doesn't support a two-state solution, but because he is bound to his right-wing coalition partners who opposed such a move. Lapid's entry into office next year will coincide with the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords, the only peace agreement Israel has ever reached with the Palestinians. <coughs> While there have been uh, talks, some movement in uh, implementing the accords, and many crises over the years, both sides appear to have accepted the idea that there is no hope of the peace envisioned in Oslo agreements. They have resigned themselves to making do with counterterrorism coordination, economic cooperation, and more recently with cooperation on limiting the spread of COVID-19. If you had to choose one name synonymous with the Oslo Accords, it would be that of Yossi Beilin, an architect of the historic breakthrough between the sides and the, the driving force behind many subsequent efforts to salvage the two-state solution. Beilin, who served in various government positions, including as justice minister, began his uh, political career in the Labour Party and ended it as head of the Merits Party. He retired from politics 13 years ago when he turned 60, just as he promised himself before entering political life. But he has not abandoned his vision of peace between the two nations, nor his efforts to make it come true. Yossi Beilin, Israel's enduring dove, will be with us after this short break. I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it. This past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. It's a privilege uh, to welcome to uh, On Israel in Al Monitor, a former Minister of uh, Justice, my friend and uh, even colleague Yossi Bailin. Shalom Yossi, how are you doing? And thank you for joining us here. Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. And uh, we've just, uh, I just got your uh, new book, 
uh, I, I guess it's an autobiography by, uh, that you wrote yourself. And in English, how would you call it? Secrets which I will not take with me. It's a pity you did not uh, tell me all these secrets when they were, they were relevant, <laughs> but let's start uh, chatting uh, about the book and about life. How would you describe, Yossi Bailin, the state of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process? Is it dead or maybe in an induced coma or life support machines or what? Well, I believe that our tendency to compare uh, political situations to human uh, beings uh, is not always right. Uh, I don't know how to define it in, in such a parameters. What I can say is that since 2014, the talks uh, which were uh, uh, actually initiated by uh, Secretary John Kerry then stopped. And since then, we don't have uh, any peace process. Uh, I, I, I am sure that eventually we will have one. I hope so. But we are speaking about a very long uh, Uh, recess and and uh, I don't know when it is going to be renewed since uh, at least on the Israeli side there is no partner uh, and the, the non-partner is saying very clearly for the first time after many years that he doesn't even intend to meet with uh, the other side. By the way, even maybe uh, in the case of Naftali Bennett, it's, uh, it's obvious, but even I, I guess two or three weeks ago, Yair Lapid was supposed to, uh, to uh, replace uh, Prime Minister Bennett within one and a half years said, even when I'm prime minister, I will not uh, negotiate with, uh, with the Palestinian Authority and Mahmoud Abbas uh, for a settlement or so. But I want to go with you To square one, maybe, you are the, the formal ar architect and initiator of the Oslo Accords and secret negotiation that was, uh, was uh, before. And do you have any uh, capability to, to answer the, the $64 billion question? If PLO leader Yasser Arafat then went along with the Oslo Accords because he wanted peace or because he wanted to weaken the Jewish state and undermine it uh, step by step. Do you, do you, when you're alone with, with yourself, what do you think? When I'm alone with myself, I uh, get to the conclusion that uh, trying to understand the motivations of others is something which is very, very, very difficult, if not impossible. And what is important is, is what they are, are they doing? And I think that uh, Arafat changed his mind. It was in 88, by the way, when uh, he convinced the PLO to uh, change its policy and to agree to the UN Resolution 242. And uh, what happened also uh, was that the decision of King Hussein on the July 20, uh, 31st, uh, 88, Uh, to withdraw, to, to give up on the West Bank. And the Arafat understood, I believe, that there is a, a kind of a vacuum that he could uh, fill. And another thing happened. Uh, he uh, supported uh, Saddam Hussein in, uh, in 91, in 1991, and uh, paid a huge price uh, in the Arab world, in the world, generally speaking, 
and vis-a-vis -vis the Americans as a result of it. It was one of his biggest mistakes. And uh, he, he wanted very much to get back to the, to the club. And he knew that his most important card uh, would be to uh, negotiate peace with the Israeli side. So uh, whether he wanted to weaken Israel, I'm sure. I mean, he, he never uh, hid uh, his, uh, his ideology. Uh, but does it mean that he wanted uh, to uh, somehow get rid of Israel and believe that it was possible? I don't think so. Last uh, question uh, about the, the, the past, uh, the Oslo Accords, of course, that uh, no one can speak to you without mentioning it. Uh, before we go to the present, is about Prime Minister, late Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin. Uh, did he go to Oslo on his own free will, or did you and your former mentor, Shimon Peres, uh, have to draw him into the process uh, gradually? Well, I, I'm sure that Rabin went to Oslo in his, uh, with his uh, free will. And I'll tell you what, what is my, uh, my view about it. Rabin uh, used the slogan in his uh, electoral campaign saying that during six to nine months, he will have an agreement with the Palestinians. And uh, I'm sure you remember it. This was the main slogan of the elections. Now, he did not succeed to do that. And uh, Rabin wanted very much uh, to uh, fulfill his promises. He did uh, fulfill many of them. Uh, and uh, since he could not uh, have a real and uh, serious uh, negotiations with the Palestinians, and what happened then in Washington as a result of the Madrid conference was far from bring, being enough. He understood that he should somehow talk directly with the PLO and he tried to do it through some envoys and they, it did not succeed. So when I came to Paris telling him that uh, we have a paper, a, an initial paper with uh, PLO senior uh, members, um, and Paris went with it uh, to Rabin. Rabin, although uh, not being in love with the idea that Paris was the envoy or that I was behind it, still understood that there, there was a, an opportunity then. Without such a paper, he wouldn't have agreed to, uh, to, to join the, the, the process and to lead it. But once he saw that there was such a paper speaking about Gaza first and then uh, other developments in, in the West Bank, he understood the seriousness, uh, which he, by the way, tested later on a few times during the process and eventually uh, on, was not only ready to join it, but also was in his own shy way enthusiastic about it. Another question I cannot... Uh hold myself not to ask i just thought about it now since november 95 how many times did you ask yourself what would have happened if rabin was not assassinated uh, and do you have any answer for it or did you maybe you didn't ask it at all because he was assassinated this is reality and we have to uh, go on 
I asked myself this question many times and I knew that it was stupid to ask it. You're right. Let's talk a, a little about the book. Uh, can you share with us some of uh, the revelations in your uh, new autobiography secrets that I will not take with me uh, behind the scenes of all the so many uh, negotiations and processes and everything you've been involved with within the last two or three decades? You know, during these years, there were many, many surprises. And you complained before that I did not share it with you at the time. But had I shared it with you, I think that it would have been really a kind of an atomic bomb. And I'll give you an example. The example is, is from uh, 1995, the beginning of 1995. Uh, there were uh, talks between a, a group of uh, Israelis uh, and a group of Palestinians led by uh, Rabin and Arafat uh, in uh, the Erez passage uh, between Gaza and uh, Israel. And uh, it was in the midst of the negotiations on the autonomy agreement, which was signed later on in September 95. And there were some issues uh, that, uh, that Arafat wanted to raise with uh, Rabin. I, I was there with uh, Rabin and uh, Saeed Barikat, the late Saeed Barikat, uh, uh, came with, uh, with Arafat. Uh, Arafat raised uh, several uh, points that he wanted uh, to uh, uh, Rabin to agree on. And one of them was the issue of direct uh, election of the president, uh, the Palestinian president. According to the, uh, to the drafts, the Palestinian president should have been uh, elected by the Palestinian uh, legislative uh, body. And he wanted that the Palestinian president would be elected by the people. And he said, you know, Mr. Rabin, you are going to have elections in, in, a, in a year or two years, and you are going to elect for the first time your prime minister uh, directly. So why do you deprive uh, me from, doing, from being elected directly like you? And then there was a, an intermission and, and, and uh, the, the two parties uh, went to different uh, rooms to, uh, to uh, discuss uh, the, the discussions and then to, to, to uh, get back after half an hour or something like that. So uh, I sat with Robin and, and uh, he, he uh, raised some, some uh, questions. And then uh, there was a knock on the door and uh, an Israeli soldier who uh, was the asked me to uh, told me that uh, Saeed Barikat, uh, the Palestinian chief negotiator, uh, asked me uh, to talk with him about an urgent issue. I uh, I said that, but I cannot. I'm 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 sitting with the, the prime minister, and he said, no, 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 it is urgent. And Rabin said, go, go, go to talk with him. Maybe he has some surprise for us. And it was a surprise. It was a crazy surprise. Yes, uh, Saeed Barikat, 
wanted to, to talk to me about the direct election of the, of the Palestinian president. And he said to me, you know that I'm loyal to Arafat, but I'm also loyal very much to the Palestinian people. If you agree for a direct election of the, of the president, you are actually assisting a tendency to have in our, on our side a Palestinian dictatorship like all the, Arab, the other Arab states. If the, the president is elected in the parliament, at least we will have influence on him because he will be dependent on us. If not, he will not depend on anybody. Please ask the prime minister not to agree to, to Arafat demand. You know, I heard this and I couldn't believe myself. I mean, there was not, nobody was closer to Arafat than, than Saibarikat. And here he comes to me and asked me not to agree to what his boss wants the most. And he said to me, Yossi, you have to understand, all the other requests are important for Arafat, but nothing, nothing is close to the, this demand to be directly uh, elected. It is really I, unbelievable. I went to Rabin and I told him, it's hard you will not believe me, but this is the request of, of, of Cyberikant. And Rabin thought for a while and said to me, Yossi, I understand, I understand and he is right, of course, but you know, Arafat came to me with so many requests and I cannot meet any of them, but this one. And I will, I will say yes to you, understanding the difficulty of saying yes. And this was the case. Yes. Uh, we came to the room, to the joint uh, meeting. Uh, Rabin referred the, to the difficulties, to his difficulties, to meet the, the, the challenges that Arafat put in front of him. And then he said, but uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, one thing I can accept, I understand your case, your point, and uh, we will agree to direct election of the, of the president. And I looked at Arafat and I saw kind of satisfaction, happiness. I don't know how to exactly define it. And then I saw Saiba Rikat. So disappointed. Face, gray face when listening to, to the decision of, uh, of Rabin. I think that this was perhaps, perhaps one, one of the most, uh, one of the biggest surprises ever in the negotiations. And I admit that had Zaybarikat, my friend, been alive, I wouldn't have published. Yes, uh, by the way, they are all dead. I think uh, Mahmoud Abbas and yourself are the, the last uh, two Mohicans from the, all this process. And I wanted to ask you about him. And, and it's, a, it's, an, it's a fascinating story. By the way, it shows also the, the, the amount of trust that uh, Cyber Arikat uh, gave you, because you can uh, you could uh, leak it out and then uh, he's, he's, uh, he's dead. But uh, two, two quick questions. Uh, you've been advocating an Israeli-Palestinian confederation in recent years. 
I wanted to know if, if that does it mean that you've given up on the two stage, the original two state solution or idea. And also about Mahmoud Abbas that has lost much of the Palestinian people's support in this elderly Sikh, uh, Sikh leader. Is he still a partner for peace or are you uh, the only Mohican left in this arena? Well, speaking about the two-state solution, you know, my interest as a Zionist is to have a border between us and the Palestinians in order to assure a Jewish majority forever. Now, this is why I supported a, a Palestinian-Jordanian state, a Palestinian-Jordanian confederation, and even unilateral uh, withdrawal if, if uh, Israel decides. I believe wrongly that there is no partner. Uh, so I, I'm not giving on, on the border. And I think that the best way to have a border is in, in an agreement with the Palestinian state. But I see the confederation as the most important vehicle to have such a two-state solution. It is an enabler, not a substitute, not a, an alternative. Because if there is a confederation, there will be a possibility to, or not to evacuate those uh, settlements which will remain to the east of the future border between us and the Palestinians. And I believe that the issue of evacuation of settlers is the biggest hurdle for any Israeli leader who will be ready to go for peace and to pay the territorial price. Because the territorial price is not the most important or the most difficult issue. What is difficult is to face many Israelis who will have to leave their homes. And we saw what happened in the past. It is not impossible, but it is very difficult and I think that politically, it is a must for those who support the two-state solution. Now, a confederation is much wider than that. And uh, we are working uh, today uh, in the last two years, and we have been working on it, uh, and the uh, Israelis and Palestinians in an informal way. And I hope that uh, in the coming uh, weeks, we will be able to expose it. But part of the, the book that we are preparing on confederation you will see the, a joint narrative. And never before the two parties agreed or even perhaps tried to agree on a joint narrative. You know, people used to criticize me that uh, what I tried to do may, uh, was mainly a, an effort to solve the problem of 67, but not of the problem of 48, namely the issue of the refugees and other uh, derivative uh, problems which uh, were born then. And here, this is a very interesting, I believe, effort uh, to base the confederation of a joint, on a joint uh, narrative. Interesting. So now you just uh, told us that you're working on a book about confederation, and I'm looking forward yes. with, yes. with, it is, with it is not a, a Pardon? You're writing it alone or with the... No, 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 no. I mean, writing alone is the easiest thing in the world, uh, having uh, one-sided agreements. Uh, whatever I did, 
was always with the Palestinians and with significant Palestinians, because if it is not with them, then it is another idea. Maybe yeah. it is good, it is bad, but here, when you show your partner, you are, a diff you are in a very different uh, situation. So Maybe. we do have partners and uh, it, this will be exposed uh, very soon. Yeah, the new version uh, or generation of the Geneva Accords that you also uh, is one of your projects in the past. Now let's uh, touch a little uh, the Israeli politics, which is very fascinating in these days. And if you had stayed in Israeli politics, you've been uh, the, the chairman of Meretz, would you have brought Meretz into a government led by such an ideological opposite as Naftali Bennett? Uh, would you uh, serve as a, as a minister in Naftali Bennett's uh, government? Yeah, he, is, he is a very strange uh, bedfellow, I must admit, admit. And had you asked me such a question a year ago, or I don't know, seven months ago, uh, my answer would have been negative, I presume. But uh, you get to a situation and you, you have to, to take decisions. And had I been the, the leader of uh, Merits today, I would have done what the leader of uh, Merits did uh, and joined the, the government. I think that uh, what is happening today is not a model for the future. I wouldn't like to see such uh, governments uh, for a long time, but uh, it is a kind uh, of, of a uh, interim solution in which uh, we can uh, prevent very, very problematic uh, decisions uh, on the one hand, on, on more settlements and whatever, and on the other hand, to replace a very, very bad prime minister. And we did it. Do you think he was a threat, a real threat to democracy? I'm talking about the previous prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. I think that what happened to him was a process. It wasn't that uh, from day one, he was a threat uh, to democracy, not at all. He's an intelligent person, and I believe that, uh, generally speaking, he, he was a, a much more liberal and open-minded. But uh, the, the, the long years in power did not uh, make him a better prime minister. It is the other way around. And the, the accusations against him and the, eventually the indictment put him in, in a very, very different uh, a transformation that he took uh, very problematic decisions like encouraging uh, people like Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is really be behind, beyond any kind of Israeli mainstream, uh, minimal mainstream, and made him uh, such a, an important person in Israeli politics in an artificial way. Okay, let's uh, go back to something dear, that you're writing in your book. Uh, you say that uh, your actions are uh, all guided by the idea of Jewish continuity. Could you explain? I, I was born three years after the Holocaust. And the Holocaust became for my generation and, and for your generation, I think, the, the most important variable. I mean, we don't have to speak about it every day, but I think that every day we are doing things which are this way or another connected 
to what happened between 39 and 45. And uh, as, as a kid, I mean, this, this was the, the, the most important thing in my life, although I, I, I'm not coming from, a, a, I mean, my parents were not uh, Holocaust survivors. They came with their families in the 20s and did not have to go, thanks heaven, uh, through these uh, awful years in Europe. Uh, and and whatever I did, I mean, for me, uh, Oslo and and the birthright are on the same spectrum. I mean, I for for me, the the, the continuity continuation of the Jewish people is the most important thing for me. And don't ask me why. I mean, I'm not sure that I have a logical, rational uh, reason. I I see the the Jewish people as my family, my extended family. And I want this family to, to prosper, to succeed and, and to be there. And uh, I'm trying to do different things in order to assure that this will be the case because I, I, I take nothing for granted. I mean, if, if you one thinks about the Holocaust, he, he or, or she must understand that something like that can happen. And if it can happen, and I'm sure that that until 39, people would say something like that will never happen. It happened already. And then you ask yourself, how can you save these people? Now, there are those who say, hey, this is not your job. And the, the Jewish continuity is not uh, such a, a, an important aim uh, that the world will not lo lose uh, much if uh, Jews are not around, uh, convert to other, to, to other uh, uh, religions or, or just uh, give up or, or, on their Judaism. And uh, I cannot prove anything. I'm, I'm just saying that this is very important for me and, and you must ac accept it from me. And, and I, I, I know it's I it's authentic, Yossi. I know it's authentic, a very authentic in 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 your side. And I want to ask you because one of the most major uh, ideas and projects you've been initiated in this uh, field is uh, you are one of the founders of the Taglit Birthright Program that has brought hundreds of thousands of young Jews from all over the world to visit Israel. Has the program fulfilled its goal? Does it still maintain ties between Israel and the Jewish diaspora? despite the growing ideological gap between American liberal Jewry and Israel that is going to the opposite direction? You know, I invented this idea in 94 and some of uh, the foundings, the founding fathers of Taglit were the most, the, the, most the, the biggest opponents of this idea before they changed their minds. And the, the idea was to have a meeting point, a Jewish meeting point in a place which I believe is, is the most uh, symbolic one for the Jewish people. And this is the, the land of Israel. And uh, the success is, is, is really much bigger than what I expected. It is the biggest uh, project in, in the Jewish world, uh, the, the most uh, uh, financed, um, it, it is the, the financial support for that is bigger than for the Jewish agency and other uh, institutions and projects. And uh, as you said, uh, hundreds of thousands, about 700,000 young uh, students 
uh, from all over the world, but it is mainly from, the Ameri from America, uh, came uh, to Israel and some thousands remained in Israel and others married each other. And uh, I think that the most important thing is that they touched Israel and beforehand a very small percentage of uh, Jews in the young Jews in the world visited Israel. So this is a revolution in Jewish world. And even those who criticize us and don't accept the policy of the Israeli governments uh, are having a, a very important uh, connection with, uh, with Israel. They continue their relationships through the emails and WhatsApps and, and the social, uh, social networks. And, uh, and they, they are more active than others in, in Jewish life, in the Jewish federations and, uh, and so on. And uh, I, so, so, and this was my, my aim. My aim was not to make out of them our ambassadors. For that, we have a foreign ministry and they, they, they should not just echo the Israeli official policy. What they have to do, I mean, even if they are very much against it or uh, for it or whatever, the, the mere fact that they have been here and saw us and talked with us and is the most important thing for me. I always said it, that the bus of birthright is much more important for me than Masada. I agree. I hundred percent agree. But but Yossi, I, I wanted to, uh, to 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 hear your opinion about the the widening gap between. Let's talk about the American, the North American Jewry, which most of it is a uh, liberal, uh, left uh, leaning uh, in politics, left leaning in politics, and Israel, who is going all the way to the more conservative and the more right wing than you saw it. In the Netanyahu years, with the with the Kotel and with the uh, many many other aspects, and the the, the, the new generation of Amer young American Jews don't feel close to Israel as they felt. They don't remember that they haven't been in the Holocaust. Their their grandfathers and grandmothers are not alive anymore, and it it becomes a problem. Is the glit enough to uh, to overcome this uh, obstacle? No way. No way, Taglit is not enough and was not born in order to, to do that. I mean, it can contribute to, to bridging the gap, but it cannot uh, really fill the gap. We have to do other things. One of the things that we have to do is to find ways how to contain the new kind of Jews which are born today in the United States. I mean, what we are doing is that we stick to uh, orthodox uh, definitions of who is a Jew, rather than to admit whether we like it or not, that there are other kinds of Jews today. Like for example, the, the children of uh, uh, the Clinton family. If you remember the, the very famous uh, uh, wedding party in which there was a rabbi and the priest and uh, because Chelsea Clinton was was married yes. to uh, married a Jew, and you know, for me, as a, a child from Tel Aviv, it was very strange. I, I didn't like the idea of a rabbi and a priest. And then I asked myself, who are you? Who are you to decide for that? I mean, 
if these, if, if the kids who, who are, will be born, they are, they, they were born already, decide that they see themselves as Jews, would you be able to say, no, you are not because your father is a Jew and your mother is not? I want to contain as many as possible Jews and not to reject them. And there are many others in Israel who say, if not, they are not Jews, we don't need them. And this is a very, very big argument. And I, I as a chairman of, of Hillel in Israel and in, in other capacities, I'm dealing with this, this issue. I'm talking to people, I'm talking to my, my American Jewish friends in order to try and see how can we institutionally find solutions for this problem? Because if we can find problem, a, a solution for this problem, I think that we can do a lot. And also, if I may say, I believe that if Israel makes peace with all its neighbors, the attitude of the American jury will be different. We'll wait and see, as we say. And finally, let me ask you uh, an easy one. Since I know you, uh, I knew you, I, I, I was sure that you're the most optimistic uh, person I ever met. Now, many years uh, passed, uh, are you hopeful or pessimistic about Israel's future? I'm hopeful, but not in a sense that I'm saying to you, you know what, it will be better, it will be okay, eventually things will, will be fine. I don't believe in, in an automatic, uh, optimistic uh, situation. What I'm, I believe is that if we are taking the right steps, eventually we will assure the future of our country. And otherwise, God forbid, it may become just a very interesting and failed experiment. Yossi Bailin, it was a real treat. Uh, very interesting. I uh, thank you very much again for joining us here in, uh, on Israel. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a short break and come back with some final thoughts right after it. Toda Yossi. Toda. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and the Normal Soup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thank you for uh, staying with us. The conversation with Mr. Peace, the Israeli Yossi Bailin, was, uh, in my opinion, fascinating. First of all, I asked him a question that I asked myself in the last 30 years. Uh, how did they uh, succeed? Shimon Peres, his mentor in the, himself, to drag into the Oslo Agreement, the Oslo Accords, the Oslo process, 
which was highly secret in the first uh, months. No one knew about it. Uh, the hawkish Yitzhak Rabin, and uh, Balin said that uh, Rabin came to the process uh, in his own free will. You know, he did not like the fact that uh, Paris and Balin were the leaders, but uh, he did not hesitate. He wanted to solve the, the Palestinian problem. He knew the, the importance of uh, getting anything uh, in this uh, in this track, and uh, no one forced him uh, to do so. One unbelievable story he told us was about that uh, moment in the negotiation when the sides went uh, each to his chambers, and he sat with uh, Rabin and Paris, and Arafat said, sat with his people, and suddenly, Saeb Arika, the chief uh, Palestinian negotiator and a very close friend of Berlin, asked uh, Balin to, to meet him in, uh, in Four Eyes, and Balin got Rabin's permission, and then Erekat asked Balin to ask Rabin to refuse to Arafat's uh, request that the Rabin will, uh, will agree to direct electing the, the, uh, the Palestinian president. Erekat told him, if you'll do so, we'll have here dictatorship, like in all the Arab world. The only way to, 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 to have the Palestinians have a democracy is going for a parliament election, and then when the president will be elected by parliament, we'll have democracy. Balin tried to do so, but Rabin, unbelievably, agreed to Arafat's request because he refused to all the other requests and he decided to, uh, to say yes to this one. Another key question focused on the confederation, the Israeli-Palestinian confederation idea, which is uh, something that uh, Berlin is talking and pushing in the last uh, few years because the two-state solution is, uh, let's, let's say, limping. And he said he did not uh, abandon the two-state solution or actually the idea that we need border between Israel and the Palestinian state, uh, in his words, to ensure a Jewish state forever. So he said, I'm not giving up the border idea, uh, but the best way, of course, is to have a border between the two states. But when uh, he's talking about the confederation, uh, this idea, Balin said, does not contradict the, the border and the two-state solution. It is actually an enabler uh, to the same, the very same uh, theory or uh, agenda. And uh, he said, when you're going for a, a, a confederation, uh, the main thing that people uh, are, are, are uh, saying about Balin that he's going to a Palestinian state and he's actually solving the problem of the 67, not the problem of 48. Uh, with the Confederation, uh, Balin says, it solves all the problems and it creates a total different creature that uh, most of its interests will be common. Maybe it's utopia, but this is how Balin thinks. Finally, I asked him if uh, he would uh, still now, in these days, be the Meretz uh, chairman. Would he take Meretz with him into the Bennett, Bennett-Lapid government and sit as a minister, like Nitzan Horowitz is doing right now, Minister of Health in the Bennett uh, government, and said, if it was, uh, he, he was asked this question seven months or one year ago, he would have uh, refused, of course. But right now, he would do exactly what Nitzan Horowitz did, join the government. It's not a model for the future. 
I would not like, uh, said Belling, this kind of government for the long term. It's actually an interim agreement because uh, with this government, we uh, stopped, said Belling, very terrible things that, that uh, could happen to Israel. And we uh, replaced a very bad prime minister. And when uh, I asked him if he agrees to the to the uh, whatever are saying Gidon Sar and uh, Avigdor Lieberman that Netanyahu was a threat on Israeli democracy, uh, Belin uh, surprised me. He said yes, but not from the beginning. In the beginning, he's, he was so talented and young and a lot of hopes. Uh, but uh, this long stay in office, 12 consecutive years and 15 years all around combined, uh, uh, made him in a position that he could not, uh, he, he could not help himself, and he became a threat. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, I hope to find you here next time, uh, next week, uh, the same place on Israel in Al Monitor. I am Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv. Take care. Bye-bye.